This morning we're continuing in our series on the book of Ruth. Ruth is an Old Testament book set in the time of the judges, when the Bible says everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Before Israel had a king, when chieftains ruled the 12 tribes. It's like a play, this book is. In Act 1, Naomi and her family move from Israel to Moab because of a famine. And while they live there, her husband and both of her sons die. Leaving behind Naomi and the two wives that the boys married in Moab, Orpah and Ruth. Now, Naomi hears that the famine in Israel has ended, and she decides to return there. And her daughter-in-law, Orpah, decides to stay in Moab with her family. But Ruth decides to go with Naomi, to be family to her, to start over somewhere she's never been. And Act 2 is the story of how they survive once they get back to Bethlehem. These are poor widows who did not have a lot of options. So Ruth decides to take advantage of this ancient law that allowed the poor to have a share in the harvest. In Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, the law instructs the Israelites to not harvest the corners of their field. So just harvest down the middle. And when they passed through the field to harvest, or the vineyard, they could only pass through it once. And so whatever was left in the corners, or whatever they didn't catch the first time through, those who were poor could come through and gather those things and get food for themselves. It was called gleaning. So in order to keep them from starving... Ruth decides to go out and to glean some food for herself and for Naomi. And while she's there, she meets an unexpected ally. Now, Naomi had a kinsman on her husband's side, a well-respected and manly man of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, behind someone in whose sight I may find favor. Oh, my daughter. So Ruth went. She came and she gleaned in the field behind the reapers. And she chanced, by chance, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. And just then, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, To whom does this young woman belong? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She's the Moabite who came back with Naomi from Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the reapers. So she came. And she's been on her feet from early this morning until now without resting for even a moment. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. 
Keep your eyes on the field that has been reaped. And follow behind them, and I have ordered the young men not to bother you. If you go thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Then Ruth fell prostrate with her face to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me when I am foreign? All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord reward you for your deeds, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. May I continue to find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. They continued to work, and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some of this bread, and dip your morsel in the sour wine. So Ruth sat beside Boaz's reapers, and he heaped up for her some of the grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And when she got up to glean again, Boaz instructed his young men, Let her glean even the standing sheaves, and do not reproach her. You must also pull out some of the handsful for her from the bundles, and leave them for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about 30 pounds of barley. She picked it up and came into the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gleaned. Then she took it out and gave her what was left over from her lunch, after she herself had eaten enough. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. The name of the man with whom I worked today is Boaz. Blessed be he by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The man is a relative of ours, one of our nearest kin. He even said to me, Stay close by my servants until they have finished all my harvest. It is better, my daughter, that you go out with this young women, otherwise you might be bothered in another field. So Ruth stayed close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. And this is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. Thank you, guys. So the hardest thing about understanding the Bible is knowing what to do with all the things it doesn't say. These stories that we read only ever have as much description as is necessary to kind of move the story forward. We rarely ever get to know a character's thoughts or their feelings or their motivations, which frankly is why Bible stories fall a little flat sometimes when we just read them. They don't seem to have a lot of spark in them, do they? It's because we don't get to know any, anything internal happening to the characters. But it turns out that this rather flat surface is kind of a good mirror. Because it means that we wind up projecting our own thoughts and our own feelings and our own motivations onto these characters. 
We aren't told how Ruth feels in this story, so we imagine how we would feel in the situation. And suddenly, we're in the story. And maybe, just maybe, we see something new about ourselves. This is definitely what happens with the book of Ruth. There's a lot of things in here that are not said. On the surface, it's this really lovely little story about the harvest. It's like this rags to riches fairy tale. Some scholars believe it's the sort of core story for Cinderella. Later on, you can see some of the, some of the connections there. But when you scratch that surface, suddenly things are not so clear cut. Who are these people? Ruth could be a strong woman who makes some really bold choices. Or she could be kind of a hopeless case who tends to do what other people tell her to do. We see that. Naomi could be this loving and accepting mother-in-law. Or we can read her as this scheming old lady who's kind of ashamed of her foreign daughter-in-law and is sort of using her as a pawn for her own survival. The folks in Bethlehem could be these really wonderful, generous villagers who are so glad to see Naomi come home and they're so welcoming of Ruth. Or they could be narrow-minded bigots who always call her Ruth the Moabite and never let her forget where she was born. We get to decide because the Bible doesn't tell us clearly. And one of the most challenging characters in this book is God. God could be working behind the scenes, orchestrating every chance encounter, and taking none of the credit. Or God could be mostly absent, letting famine and death and harvest run its course. Passively watching what humans do and seeing kind of what we decide to do with the whims of existence. We get to decide. The story doesn't tell us. And we get to decide this for our own situations here and now as well. We get to decide where and how and to what extent we see God at work in the world. Not only in biblical miracles like parting the sea and fiery furnaces, but even more so in our everyday joys and struggles. Because honestly, friends, the Bible paints it both ways. Sometimes it sounds like we have most of the control, and sometimes it sounds like God is responsible for every little thing that happens, both good and bad. And the question for this morning is, what do you believe? And the even more pointed question for this morning is what do you want to believe? Because if you decide to use the Bible to back you up, I can guarantee you, you could make either decision and you'll find what you're looking for. Many of us have been raised in these religious systems that are real heavy on logical convincing and kind of light on spiritual experience. We come, and we sit, and we listen to the person with the education present what is hopefully a well-crafted persuasion, and then we mentally agree with what we've heard, and that counts as faith. 
And while I think there are some things about that system that are helpful and obviously I benefit from it, I think that it doesn't quite do enough to encourage us to take responsibility for our own faith, for our own trust, for our own experience of the sacred, for our own relationship with God, if you will. What do you sense is happening in the world around you? Don't take my word for it. What kind of a spiritual reality do you want to believe in? Because in a very large part, I think you get to choose. There's this big, gnarly theological concept called God's sovereignty, which basically means God's power and God's control in the world. And many years ago, I came to a conclusion that some of you might find heretical, but here we go. I think that maybe God is as sovereign as we allow God to be. If we believe that God is at work in every aspect of our life, we will see things that we credit as miracles. If we choose to believe that God set the world in motion and now intervenes only rarely, if ever, we will see things that we credit to human ingenuity or chance. And I'm not telling you that one of those is better than the other. I'm telling you I think those are a couple of the choices that we get. And we will each make choices for our own lives based on the perspective that we come up with. The point is, friends, we get to choose. We have some spiritual agency here. I used to really want to have some religious authority that I trusted enough to convince me, to give me evidence one way or the other. I, I frankly, I didn't want to choose because I didn't want to have to take responsibility for my own faith and for the consequences of what I chose to believe. I wanted someone else to convince me. I didn't want to be responsible. I wanted to be able to say, well, this is what the Bible says, so that's what I have to do. I didn't want to pay attention to the fact that I was very responsible for deciding what the Bible says and then living into it. But the world just doesn't work like that. We all get to choose, and then we're, we are responsible to live in line with what we decide is real. So what in the world does this have to do with Ruth? Well, as I said, some of the biggest questions in this book are, where is God and what is God doing? Because God is actually mentioned very rarely in this story. And usually when God is mentioned, it's one character blessing another. Oh, the Lord be with you. Oh, the Lord bless you. The text says that Ruth happened by chance. It actually says she chanced by chance. Doesn't get any chance here. To enter the field of Boaz. She just happened to. And so we ask the scriptures, we ask ourselves, does chance mean chance? Or does chance mean God? You get to decide. Really smart people who love God argue it both ways. 
I have a stack of Ruth books on my desk. If you want to look at them, you will get two entirely different conceptions about what's happening in this story. So you get to decide, and what you decide will shape how you read the rest of the story and how you see your own life. This book is about the, the uh, interaction between human activity and divine activity. And it shows up in two major themes that we get a little bit of a glimpse of today, but that show up real strongly next week. So I wanted to kind of bring them up now. The first is uh, this idea of faithfulness or kindness. The Hebrew word is chesed. I can't even quite do it. Chesed. Yeah, thank you. Chesed. The Hebrew speakers. It's used, we saw it today, in the moment uh, when Naomi says that someone, and it's unclear in the grammar whether we're talking about God or Boaz, but someone has not forsaken his chesed to the living or the dead. It's her expression of gratitude. And it also shows up in chapter 1, where Naomi first tries to send Ruth and Orpah back to their families. And she gives them this blessing. May the Lord do hesed for you, as you have done to the dead and to me. This concept of hesed is thought by most scholars to be the key point in Ruth. It shows up three times in the four chapters. This is the big deal. This word shows up 250 times throughout the Old Testament. And it's translated, we don't have a good translation, it's faithfulness, it's loving kindness, it's covenant love, it's steadfastness, it's loyalty. The Jews say that it is one of God's 13 divine attributes. It is always the attribute used when describing God's love for the world. And we're pretty sure it's the foundation for the statement in John 1 that says, The word became flesh and dwelled among us full of grace and truth. Chesed. Chesed is not an attitude. It is always an action. Always. Usually, the Bible refers to doing hesed. Hesed is demonstrated by concrete actions carried out in the context of a relationship of mutual care and understanding. You can't do hesed to people you don't know. If you do hesed to them, automatically you know them. And the question in the book of Ruth, especially in this chapter, is who is doing the hesed? Because it can be done by God or by people. And the scripture is unclear. Who gets the credit for this? And remember, even more important than what we think is happening in the story is what do we think is happening in our own lives? We get to decide. So the second concept is redemption. The Hebrew word is goel, and it shows up here uh, the way that the way that our translation, it's at the end where Naomi says, oh, uh, we have a relative who's our nearest kinsman. We have modern scholars, we have no idea what to do with this word. It can also mean one who has the right to redeem us. There's several laws in the Old Testament. The person who has the right to redeem um, could be someone who avenges a death. So you killed one of my kinsmen, it's my job to go kill you. Uh, It could be someone who um, buys back 
something that's been sold because of poverty. It's a very broad concept, which is interesting because the idea of redemption is one of the ways that we as Christians describe what God does for us, right? It's one of our salvation words. And it has this really wide range of meanings. It means to save from an error. It means to regain possession. It means to clear a debt. It means to buy your freedom. It's the major, it's going to show up like, I don't know, something like 12 times in a row in chapter 3 next week. And so we can get hung up on exactly what this means, but I kind of think that when we do that, we lose the power of the imagery. When we try to define it too precisely, well, I don't know, is, is God buying back a field that we lost because we were poor? It's not a very... Frankly, it's not a very inspiring idea of salvation. So I think we're better when we kind of just work with a big image here. On a grand scale, to redeem something is to make it right. To take a situation that was wrong and turn it around. And very broadly, I think that's a great description of what God does for the world that God so loves. But apparently, according to the book of Ruth, humans also do redemption. So there's just a lot of things that we don't know about this book. But what most scholars agree is that this book is included in the Jewish and the Christian scriptures because it paints this beautiful picture of what the world could be like if we humans were to mimic what God does. If we were to mimic God's hesed. God's covenant love and loyalty and steadfastness. If we were to mimic God's redemption, here's what the world would look like. And regardless of how active we choose to believe God is, whatever we believe about God's sovereignty, I would think that most Christians agree that at heart, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, And God is a redeemer. So if we choose to believe that God is actively, constantly at work in the world, then obviously we want to get in on that activity of faithfulness and redemption. And if we choose to believe that those are attributes of a great God who does not directly intervene, then we have a great responsibility to carry out the work that's in line with who we believe God is. See, at Zion, we honor a wide range of Christian belief and practice. So what I think is so beautiful is that whatever you believe about God's sovereignty, both of those beliefs lead us to a commitment to personal involvement in carrying that out in the world. Either because you think God's already doing it or you want to do it too, or because you think God's not doing it, and if it's going to get done, we have to. Right? You see, either way, it leads us to this same place of wanting to mimic God's faithfulness and God's redemption. We are united in our commitment to personally enacting more faithfulness, more love, and more redemption in a world that so desperately needs it. Amen. As Brian comes back to the piano... I want to open up some space for us to listen for the Spirit 
in whatever way God speaks to each of us. After having heard a message about faithfulness and redemption. So you may want to put both feet down to help you feel grounded and present. You may want to close your eyes to help you focus. And now I invite you to take in a deep breath and let it out. And just listen. This morning, you may be feeling distant from God and unsure about what you believe. And if that's the case, then I invite you to take a moment to try to connect with what you want to believe. Maybe you need to be reminded that your love for justice and the work that you're doing in the world is not in vain, but it is in line with God's heart for the world. Maybe this morning you're feeling energized and full of God's spirit, and you just want God to show you new ways that you can participate in loving kindness and redemption. So just take a moment and listen for what the Spirit is saying to you this morning. closing prayer. Source of all goodness, make us funnels for your redemption, pouring your loving kindness into all the world. Amen.